this morning. I, I wanted to start off by pointing out something I noticed yesterday. Raka? 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 Raka. Last night, there were some cheers that happened with the team. And right in the middle of the cheers, I heard this loud, loud voice. And I thought to myself, which counselor is that? And I turned around, and right in front of the whole green team, right? That was you. Ah. And I was like, whoa! How did so much noise come out of Raqqa? Well done, well done. Let's give Raqqa a round of applause. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Woo! Woo! I was scared. I was actually intimidated. I was like, ooh, don't cross Raqqa. Raqqa will mess you up. And then just like shortly after that, where's he at? Joseph? 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 Yeah? Off of whose back? Ryan? Oh my goodness. I almost want to bring you up here and make you do it again. Like I was just watching. It's like, who's everybody's cheering? And then like somebody just did like a somersault through the middle of everybody. And I was like, whoa, what just happened? Oh, what was that the whole time? Oh, that was you. That was you. Oh man. Gymnastics? Are you a gymnast? No? Okay, okay, okay. It was spectacular. It was like a whole show. It was like Raka yelling and scaring us all. And over here, Joseph was just flipping and just Freaking us all out. It was well done. Well done. Everybody hit it, hit it for Joseph there, too. I was, I was, was well done. I know, I know, Green, you didn't get the outcome you were hoping for. I know. I know. I know. I had nothing to do with that. Uh, I had a little bit to do with that. I had nothing to do with that. Um, but you guys did great. You did really, really well. Um, the cabin cleanup this morning was really, really fun to do, especially with the, the used Band-Aid. What do you call this? Pasta. Yeah. It was, it was not just used, it had been well used. Um, and so I looked at it and there was a story there and I could just see there's a backstory to you. And he was just laying there like, I've been neglected, they left me here. I said, I'll pick you up. No, I won't. Um, so yeah, not at all, not at all. Well, good morning and I'm ready to study the word of God with you. You ready to hop into the text? Let's do this together. Turn to Job. Turn to Job. This is our third morning in Job, and this is where we'll finish in Job. In Job chapter 1, we'll start there and we'll turn a little bit today through Job. Job is that book right before Psalms. So if you find Psalms, go to the book before it, and there you're at Job. And just before we come in to study God's Word, let's ask him to bless our time in his word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for yourself. I thank you for the work you do in our lives, that even in the midst of our darkest moments, you are there. Even in the midst of our hardest days, you are there. And sometimes when we might not see you, we can be confident in our faith that you are there at work. And as we study this morning and we see this our brother Job, this saint, even as his heart wrestles and his mind grapples with the loss that he experienced, I pray that you would teach us, teach us to trust you, even as our brother Job comes to. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. We said that the goat, the greatest of all time, had turned broke. Job had lost everything, his property, his children, his health, and even the comfort of his friends. You, know, you remember his friends yesterday? His friends were the worst. Like, t terrible, terrible guys coming in, making accusations. Uh, the one friend that really does it for me is the friend who shows up and says, you know, it could have been a lot worse. You know, you should just be thankful it was just as bad as it was. That guy's a jerk. You read of these friends who come in and instead of telling the truth about God, they spoke like fools and they give their ideas of their God and how their God works, not knowing exactly how God truly works. You see, what we said and what we saw and what Job confessed with his mouth is that God is in control even when bad things happen. God is still the one in control. Bad things and suffering in our lives does not always or even mean often that we're being punished. Rather, God, who is wise and good, 
is behind the clouds working out all things together for good. And so in his suffering, Job looks to God. When real pain sets into his life, he turns his eyes to God. Job 1, you're there. Verse 20. Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped in the midst of his darkest moments. In his suffering, Job rightly worshipped God. Oh, that we could learn that. When his suffering first set in, Job had his eyes fixed on God. He may have lost everything, but he still had a God he could trust. He may be... as his skin begins to separate and bleed and ooze. The pain of his physical body, the torment of all of his nerve endings on fire as he sits there in pain, even as his physical vision begins to go dark, darkness starts to close in on Job's mind and heart. Grief, listen, grief isn't over at the end of the day. Like, like, like a week later, Job's heart is still broken that his ten children have died. A lot of times in life, you experience, some of you have experienced heartbreaking moments. They've been tragic moments in your life. And when it happens, everybody comes around you and they go, oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, come here, I'm so sorry. And they cry with you, they pray over you. And then three weeks later, they go back to life as normal. But you on the inside with your broken heart go around everywhere and your heart is broken. And they all just live life, but your grief continues on and on and on and on. And there's moments where you, you wake up and you think of it again. You're walking down the road and you see something that reminds you of it. You hear a sound and your, your mind goes back to it and you, you follow it out and your heart is just broken. The grief doesn't end. Job here is carrying now not just sores on the outside, but his festering and oozing sores on the inside, agony in his heart. And in the midst of that pain, covered in head to toe with boils, Job's wife, also feeling that agony, is overwhelmed by the pain of all that they've lost. And she leaves Job. She can't take much more. And now Job's heart is broken as his health and even his wife leave him. Job's words see his heart of faith, even with eyes shut from swelling and sores. Look at Job chapter 2, verse 10. But he said to her as she leaves, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaks. What? Shall we, shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this did Job not sin with his lips. Job, even through the loss of everything, and through the loss of his physical health, and through the loss of his supportive wife, Job hadn't lost his faith in God. Take this world, but give me Jesus. There's a song we sing. Literally, everything can go away. But as long as I have you, God, in my life, I have everything I need. But worshiping God, listen, worshiping God didn't make the pain go away. It still hurt while he worshiped. He did a lot of worshiping through tears. It wasn't like, well, now I worship. It doesn't hurt anymore. Whew. Oh, man. No more worries. No, he's crying and weeping. It was never meant that turning to God would be all comfort and escape from pain. 
Turning to God would be comfort while bearing pain. And God was right. And God was wise. And God was good. Even if Job couldn't see how. God saw fit in his perfect goodness and perfect wisdom to permit these things to happen. But what we come to find in the story of Job, as things got darker and darker, Job's heart broke. The darkness of his soul got so dark that Job seems to have lost more than his physical sight. The friends that showed up and at first wept with those that weep, the, the friends who showed up and, and didn't just do something, they stood there, did right, but eventually they got to the point where they now are hitting Job with a barrage of accusations, increasing the suffering not just of his physical body, not just of his heart, but now of his tormented mind. They're going to layer in accusation after accusation after accusation against his character, against the decisions he's made in life. Job was a man who was generous in everything he did. As he built wealth, he didn't build it for himself. He understood that wealth, he even says this in his arguments, he understood that wealth given to him by God was his on loan to care for all those that had need. He uses the word justice. I have done justice to those in need. I made sure that as God built my plantations, as God multiplied my flocks as God expanded my bank accounts. All of that was just a conduit to bless people. And now I don't even have the chance to bless them anymore. And there are accusations coming, false accusations coming into his life. In their minds, God wasn't powerful enough to use suffering for any other reason. God must be punishing Job, they said. So according to these hurtful friends, Job needed to repent. And if he would, then God would take care of all this pain. The book progresses and shows how that Job is eventually so overwhelmed by their accusations that Job starts arguing with them. He's arguing with these men, and because they're so far off in their accusations, Job must address what they're saying and argue and defend his honor and correct their wrong statements about him. But it's a trap. It's a trap because arguing and trying to defend your honor isn't really that important. And what happens is, as Job begins to argue about how right he is, something is shifting in his heart. In doing so, Job ceases from chapter 1 and 2, where in the midst of his pain, where are his eyes? He's looking to God. God, I trust you. God, I believe in you. God, I count on you. God, I rely on you. God, I know you're at work. To now, as I defend myself, where do my eyes go? Down to me. I'm looking at my life going, what? Why, did it, why did this happen to me? What you're saying is wrong. I'm not living in sin. I'm not a broken person. Stop accusing me falsely. Stop saying what you're saying. You don't know what you're talking about. Stop attacking me. And Job begins a defense of himself, and in doing so, he inadvertently takes his eyes off of God and begins putting his eyes on himself. In this moment, as he's defending himself as righteous, and as he's arguing for himself as righteous, he's not necessarily sinning. He's just now lost focus of where you need to keep your focus in the midst of your pain. God. Don't put your eyes anywhere else. It's Peter who gets out of the boat, and he's walking on the water as he keeps his eyes on Jesus. And what happens when he takes his eyes off of the one place his trust and heart need to be set? He begins to look at the waves and the wind around him. And what happens? The bottom falls out. Job, in the midst of his storm, in the midst of this trial, has had his eyes on God. And in this moment, it's been going really well. He's suffering so well. It's commendable to see him worship God. Naked I came from the womb, and naked I'll return. The Lord gave, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But now as they argue against him, 
he falls for the trap of trying to defend his honor. Things have shifted. You might say that by the middle of the book of Job, Job has lost his Job-likeness. He looks less and less like the Job who started the story. And now he's reasoning. He's arguing. As suffering lasted longer, and the pain continued and multiplied, and the ache lasted for days and weeks and months, Job finally ceased his worship. Nowhere through the whole middle part of the book does Job worship God. His tone and his voice begins to shift. In defending himself and grappling with his friends over who God is, God ceased to be Job's comfort and became merely an object to discuss. There are many who love the idea of coming to church and being around Christians because they like to talk theology. They like to talk about, well, how do you think God works? Now, what does that look like for you? And it's all a mental exercise to talk about God as though he's this, this simple subject that can be studied, handled in our hands. The failure of that kind of living and thinking is it takes the mass of God who's way bigger than you, way stronger than you, way mightier than you, way wiser than you, way more knowledgeable than you, who knows everything and tries to put them in tiny little packets that we can argue about. And Job and his friends actually begin grappling through the character of God. And Job no longer is looking at God as a wise God who gives and takes away who's a big God up there, who has all kinds of answers that I don't know. And Job now, in defending his own character and arguing over the theology of who God is, let's just get it nuanced, has taken his big God that he can trust in and brought him down to a hand-sized packet of God that we can just discuss and talk about. God ceased to be Job's comfort and became an object to discuss. Job forgot that we are sheep in his pasture. He forgot that we are the clay in the potter's hands. He forgot that we are the creatures. He's the creator. He could have done well to hear the accusations and closed his mouth and keep on worshiping. He could have done well to hear the false accusations against the character of God, and instead of trying to grapple and convince somebody of his theology, just continued to worship God. In the midst of his grief and his suffering, Job eventually gets to the point where now not only is he answering those around him, Job begins speaking to God. Turn to Job 13. Job 13. Job 13, Job is speaking now, and Job is frustrated. He's now no longer looking at God, saying, I trust you, I trust you, I trust you. He's now looking at his own life. He's now looking at his own suffering, and all that he sees is how big this suffering is and how hard it hurts, and he doesn't have his eyes up to heaven. He has his eyes down here on his suffering, and it's just so terrible. And why is this happening to me? What did I do to deserve this? It's better I wasn't even born. God, why would you do this to me? God, why would you even come near me? In Job 13, Job now turns his complaints towards the heavens. Verse 3, Surely I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to reason with God. I, you know what? I'm done reasoning with you fools around me. Your accusations against my character, you step aside, okay? I want to talk to God about this suffering. God, why? Why would you do this to me? I have made every effort to sacrifice for you. Did you not see me come to you for forgiveness of sins? Have you not seen that I've hated evil my whole life? I've loved you and served you my whole life. God, I want an answer now. The heart of worship is gone. And Job's suffering is increasing. 
His hurt is deep as it's ever been. In the midst of his pain, he now speaks like a fool. Verse 20 of chapter 13. Only do not two things unto me, then will I not hide myself from you. Withdraw thine hand far from me, and let not thy dread make me afraid. Then call thou, and I will answer, or let me speak, and answer thou me. God, it's gone so far off the rails in my life, I'd like to have a chat. Job has gone from being the humble one under the mighty hand of God, where while his heart breaks, he continues in his faith and his trust in God. But through the nagging accusations of people around him, through theological prowess in Job's mind and heart, he's been slowly lifted with pride now. And Job now is going to make demands to the God he trusted at the beginning of the book. Now his heart is no longer comforted by God. He wants that God to come as though that God's going to come and sit in a chair in front of Job. And Job's going to say, okay, listen, there's a few things I need you to answer me, God. Do you see how small God has gotten in his mind? Job's broken heart has ceased to worship making God an object to discuss. Job took his eyes off of God. He starts looking inward. He starts focusing only on his suffering. And as the suffering got bigger and bigger in his eyes, God got smaller and smaller in his faith. Job goes from a creature who falls to his knees and worships God, the God of the universe, to a grieving man trapped in darkness and convinced that his suffering is unjust and that because he is sinless and self-righteous, the God of the universe needs to come and answer a few questions to him. That's a change, because Job isn't acting like Job anymore. The sneaking pride in his heart has found its way out. Job began looking at his suffering instead of looking at God, and now he wants to know, God, tell me. Why am I suffering? God, listen to this. When we ask God, why am I suffering? What we're saying is, God, give me a good enough reason that you would do something like this. We've put God in a chair and said, God, if you tell me a good enough reason, I'll approve of you. I'll let you buy with it, God. But if you tell me a reason, and I'm like, wait, what, that? No, of course not. We say, God, you will answer to me now. We've forgotten completely how the whole dynamic of human existence in relation to the Almighty actually works. We've got it flipped upside down. Job forgot his place. And now he's saying, answer me this then, God. Why did you do this? Why? Job imagined that his greatest need in the midst of his suffering, listen, Job imagined that his greatest need in the midst of his suffering was for God to answer the why question. If you could just give me a reason for suffering, I'll be good. You just tell me. Tell me, what's this going to do? And then I'll let you do it. I'll be okay with it. Do you see how his heart of faith is gone now? No longer it is the Lord gave and the Lord took. Shall we expect good and not evil? Now it is, okay, if evil does come, God needs to, to add a little note with it and say, hey, the, the hard times, here's what they're, oh, so in six years you're going to change things? Uh, all right, I'll let you do the evil in my life. Oh, you'll, you'll permit suffering now, but, oh, wow, in 42 years, 42 is a little long. If you bring it down, I'll let you do the suffering in my life. As though we're going to bargain with the Almighty that his perfectly wise plans could somehow be improved by our notions of good. Eventually, Job is in full-blown sinful self-righteousness. He doesn't do what Satan said he would do. He never curses God. Thank God for his preserving grace in our brother's life. 
But as Job started focusing more on his pain and his suffering and took his eyes off the goodness and wisdom of God who deserved to be worshipped, he got it wrong. And I love that about the story. Because imagine the story was Job suffered, and in the midst of his suffering, he trusted God all the way through it, and it was great. Job is a person like you and like me. He has the same heavy human heart. The suffering did to him what it's done to many of us. He's under the weight of breaking hearts and time of suffering and grief. Eventually, our faith shrivels up. Our trust in God gets weaker and weaker. And we see here an actual story of an actual man who actually reached nearly the end of his faith in God. You see, Job got it wrong when he started demanding an answer to the why question. One pastor, Christopher Ash, said that beneath the why question of suffering in everyone's life, there's another question. I've heard this a few different ways. This one I think is helpful. The why that Job is asking here is, is God for me or against me? Tell me, God. When you did all this, were you actually against me? Do you, do you want to just ruin me completely? Or God, is there, is there a way you could explain all of this? Where it makes sense in the end that you were actually for me all along and you were doing something? That's what Y wants to know. Y wants to know, is God doing this to hurt me or is God doing this for my good? Is God doing this as punishment or is God doing this as love? Is God worth trusting? And never stopping trusting. Or is God a villain and incompetent? Can I trust God with my pain or do I need to seize control and demand answers from God as though I could judge his motives and find better reasons? When we suffer, we have to come to the point where we say either, I will trust and worship God for his wisdom and goodness because he's in control in the midst of all things and even when bad things happen, God is in control. Or we suffer and we say, the suffering is too much. I don't deserve this. I didn't do anything bad enough to deserve this kind of pain or loss or heartache or heartbreak. God better tell me why he did it or I just won't believe in him anymore. This is why we said when the destruction moves in, the deconstruction begins. For many people, they get to this point and the God they've believed in isn't big enough to be doing good things out of bad things. And they go, I don't want God anymore. If we take our eyes of faith off God and put them on our suffering, we'll often become self-righteous. We didn't deserve this. We did better than this. We become the older brother who says, look what I've done for you, Father. How could you do this to me now? We start making demands of the Father. And what we really are doing, look at me, the most comfort that Job ever found was when he was on his knees worshiping God. At this point in the story, Job has increased his own suffering by turning his heart away from God. Yeah, the loss of everything. Yeah, the, the fire that consumed it all. The enemies that stole it all. The sickness, the pain, the wife leaving. The friends attacking, but Job, you did this to yourself. This last layer of suffering was when you took your eyes off of God and looked down, and while you stared at your suffering, started making demands of the Almighty. You have actually caused deeper pain and suffering in yourself, Job. Bro. So what will God do? True comfort does not come in having the why question answered. We imagine it's what we need because we think we know best, but the reality is that God often rarely answers the why. As Job goes, tell me why you did this. In this book, 
You know what God never does in 42 chapters? He never tells Job why he did it. He never says, okay, Job, come over here, bud. I'm going to tell you. So there was this thing behind the clouds that was happening. And let me tell you how it went. Job never learns the why of his suffering. He doesn't see an answer directly from God about why he suffered. God knows exactly what Job's need is. And in this story, God gives Job exactly what he needs. And if you notice, it's not because Job deserves it. Job's not over here crushing it. It's not Job in the midst of worship going, God, I worship you and I trust you. And God goes, let me give you what you need then. It's actually by God's grace that God comes to Job in this moment and speaks to Job. Because now Job has turned and his heart is now not trusting in God anymore. His heart's making demands. He's got a small little God that he's bossing around telling him what to do. He's taking his eyes off of the real God. But that real God loves his people and comes to them in the midst of their brokenness, in the midst of their confusion, in the midst of their darkest moments, often those dark moments brought about by their pain like Job's. And in his grace and in his love, he comes to Job, not to sit in a tiny chair and answer all of Job's little questions. He comes to give Job what he needs. Job, who was blameless, has begun to fall into self-righteousness and now foolishly demanding things from God. But God in his grace, not because Job deserves it, but because God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, has now come to Job to give him what he needs, not what he asked for. And in the midst of his suffering, we don't need the why question answered. Your heart is broken, and you're like, why, God, did you allow this thing to happen? Job seems to point to us that we don't need that why question answered. That God wants to give him something better than the answer to the why. What will God give him? Notice what he gives him. Turn to Job chapter 38. I mean, what do you give to a man who owns everything? Well, take it away and give him the most important thing. Job 38. After all this, then the Lord, verse 1, answered Job out of the whirlwind. Do you remember when the whirlwind happened in this story earlier? You remember what the whirlwind was? What the whirlwind did? What did the whirlwind do back in chapter 1? Destroyed his son's house. The whirlwind is the thing that came through and killed Job's children. God will speak to Job out of the thing that caused Job his greatest pain. That in the wisdom of God... He'll use our moments of deepest pain to reveal to us. If we'll trust in him and listen to him and look to him, he'll use those as our deepest, most intimate moments with him. Here he goes, Job, I want to talk to you. And out of the whirlwind he speaks, and here's what he says, verse 2. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? You're talking above your pay grade, Job. There's things you're talking about you don't understand. Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I'll demand of thee, and answer thou me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Who has laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Or who has stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut up the sea with doors when it break forth as if it had issued out of the womb. When I made the cloud, the garment thereof, and thick darkness, a swaddling band for it, and break up for it my decreed place, and set bars and doors, and said, Hitherto shalt thou come, but no further, and here shall thy proud waves be stayed. Hast thou commanded the morning since thy days? and cause the day spring to know his place? What God does is he says this, Job, Job, 
And Job's sitting there. It's been months now. His sores have started to heal. His friends have stopped talking. And Job, sitting in the ashes of his property, sees another cyclone come across the property. Just like the one that knocked his house down. Just like the one that killed all ten of his children. Just like the one that happened on his worst day ever. The cyclone's back. Look at, there it goes. Here it comes. What's it going to take this time? And from this thing that brought heartache in Job's life, God says, Job, listen, I have what you need. What did he need? A series of questions. Job, you need me to ask the questions, not you. Job, you need to see me for who I really am. Let me just start with some base-level questions about the formation of the planet you live on, Job. I love driving around this town. Everywhere the rocks are open and you can see them. They twist and curve. I was reading yesterday about your rock formations here in Port Moresby. I was reading how that the rocks here, there's a rock, it's that orange rock that's everywhere, that dark reddish orange. They call it chert, made of silicone. They say it formed as a sedimentary layer on the bottom of the ocean. And it would have taken hundreds, if not thousands of years to form under there. And then land pushed it up. Formation of the earth, when nobody was here to shape that. Who was here? God. A God who saw things and shapes planets. A God who, he says, who set the boundaries of the ocean? Why doesn't the ocean with the moon tide just roll over all the land all day every day and just wash it over and drown everything? Because I set the boundaries. I actually looked at the ocean and went, stop right there. And it was like, yes, sir. The whole ocean knew its place at my feet, Job. Morning comes up. The sun comes around, Job. Did you tell it to come around today? You were like, morning, it's time. And the sun was like, oh, sorry, Job, I'm on it. No, who moves morning every morning? God goes, I do. I move the heavens, I move the earth, I've shaped the thing you're standing in and the thing you're orbiting around, I've shaped the whole cosmos by my might. Job, what you need is to be reminded of who I am, how big I am. In your eyes, I became the small little God that you could argue with and you could question his motives as though he wasn't wise enough or big enough or powerful enough to be working amazing things through suffering. You thought that if you could hear my reasons, it might just resonate and you'd say it was okay. I will tell you I'm so much bigger than you've comprehended you started by worshiping me, but you moved to questioning me. Job, see what you need. What do you need? You need to see who I am. What do you give to a man who has everything? God goes, I'll take away everything and give you the one thing you need. The one thing you need. Look at me. The one thing you need. God himself. A clear vision of how big God really is. How strong God really is. How wise God really is. How would you form the continents? Oh, you just grab a little dirt over here and a little dirt over there and just make it work? I guarantee you'd have flooding every season. It'd just ruin everybody. You'd get it wrong if you tried to create the perfect weather patterns. Some people never get rain. They'd all starve. You'd be the worst at it. And that's just shaping the planet. The next two chapters, God goes, come with me, Job, on a tour. Some have called this God's tour of the zoo. Come up high into the rocks with me. Look at these creatures up here you've never seen before, Job. Who put them up here? When do they start having babies up here? What did you have to do with that, Job? Job, come down here to the sea. See these creatures in the sea? Who put them here? You're over there living in us by yourself. And you had no idea that this whole planet sings of my awesomeness. It says day in and day out how great thou art. And you sit there, little you, in your suffering. And because of your suffering, you stared at it and got your eyes off of 
big me, and you looked at your suffering, when look how big my suffering is, God, you better come and tell me why it's suffering. Imagine me working all things, including your life, for a purpose. You can just trust me, Job. God is giving Job what he needs to hear, and that is the comfort that comes in seeing that God is great. God is powerful. God is wise. And God is good. Only, always good. Job didn't need answers from God for his suffering. Job needed, listen, Job needed to be reminded that he had a God big enough to hold those answers in himself. God, I may not find the answers, but I know you do have the answers. I know that in your wisdom, you do have reasons for why this pain has come into my life. And so I'm just going to trust you. I don't need you to come and sit down and tell me all your reasons. Oh, how arrogant I would be to make that demand of you. God, you're big enough to do these things. Notice what happens when God stops talking. Job 42. Turn there. Job 42. God stops talking. He says, Then Job answered, verse 1, the Lord, and said, I know, now I know, that thou canst do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? That's how chapter 38 had started. You hide counsel without knowledge. You speak about things that you don't understand. And Job goes, oh man, who am I to speak I've come to see who you really are. I've come to see how powerful and how wise you really are. Oh, who am I? Therefore, verse 3, have I uttered that I understood not. Things too wonderful for me which I knew not. I was talking out of my head. Oh God, please forgive me. I'm ashamed that I even, I even talked to you like that. Now that I've got a grand view of you again, my heart is turned now to humility. My heart is turned now to confession. My heart is turned now to say, I'm just going to trust you again. Oh God, I'm ashamed I even opened my mouth. I see who you are. Verse 4, Here I beseech thee, and I will speak. I will demand of thee and declare unto thee, and, and declare thou unto me. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye sees thee. Wherefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. People had told me about you, and I had worshipped you based upon what people had told me. But now I've had a personal encounter with you, and you've become a personal God to me. I heard about you, but now in my life, through this pain, I've seen you. I've come to know that you are wise and you are good and I can trust you through the hardest moments of my life. What brought Job to the point where he says, I'd heard about you, but now I see you? What brought him to that point? The agonizing loss of everything brought him to that point. Job didn't start the story by, you know what, I've heard about you, but now I see you. God goes, what do you give a man who owns everything? Give him the thing he actually needs, a personal relationship with God. And God goes, in my wisdom to do that, I'll take away everything from him. There'll be nothing left. He won't be able to see anything around him. He won't be distracted by anything. He won't even be distracted by his friends or his wife. It'll just be him by himself. And he'll come to the end of his own reasoning, and he'll go, what am I going to do? And then I'll say, Job, I'm here for you. I've always been here for you. No matter what was going on, I love you and I'm for you. Job, you're mine. And Job in that moment goes, oh God, I finally understand who you are. And Job's faith deepens. 
Phil said it during our Christian Life Seminar. Each of us has a broken view, a twisted view of God. God in his kindness brings moments into our lives to shape us out of that. I don't know if you see this here. I brought this in, and this isn't so we can have a bonfire up here. We're not going to burn the church down today. See my nice log? It's so beautiful, isn't it? It's good for burning, I think, at this point. But imagine I take this log and I put it on a table. And I say, that's some pretty gnarly wood. I think I'm going to cut right here. I think I'm going to cut right here. Maybe right here. And then I'm going to start sawing and trying to make a few straight cuts out of it. And sanding it down. And I take something broken, something mangled, and with work, with hard work, I can take some wood that might look like this and turn it into some wood that might look like this. Do you see this? It didn't start like this. It didn't look beautiful like this at first, but through hard work. And I'll tell you along the way, do you think the wood was like, oh, I love being cut. I love being sanded. Along the way, in your life, the God who is wise and who is working in your life comes to you and he goes, we're going to cut right here. And you go, ah! And you cry out in pain and you go, I don't know why you would do that. The wood doesn't know what it's going to become. God knows what you will become. He knows what he is shaping and fashioning you into. Job came to understand that reality. He didn't need to see the blueprints for the future. He just needed to know he was in capable hands from now until then. What you don't need is for God to come and tell you exactly why he would allow this kind of pain in your life. What you need, young people, what you need, what I hope you take away from this week, is that you see that Jesus has come to demonstrate as he lives his life, God in the flesh, that God loves you and invites you to himself. That God is like a father who is compassionate and gracious towards you, who invites those who've lived the worst lives and those who secretly have sin in their hearts and are living the best lives with a corrupt, hollow center. The father loves both of you and calls you to himself. He's not against you, he's for you. And that as we see the story of Job, and as we see the story of Joseph, that the saints of God, people who are followers of Jesus, come to understand that moments of suffering in their life are not meaningless. They're not pointless. They're not that God forgot about you. They are actually God meant it for good. They are the handiwork of God most clearly working out in your life that you at the end might be something that he would use, something beautifully fashioned by his perfectly wise hands. Maybe you know the story. It's an ancient story. It's a strong tale amongst my people where I come from. They call it the Avengers Endgame. The Avengers Endgame, there's this massive fight scene that's happening between the Avengers and Thanos, the villain. And as they fight, there's this special moment that takes place. It's a very important moment. You see, because in, in, in Avengers Infinity War, Doctor Strange, you know who Doctor Strange is? He's my favorite Avenger. Doctor Strange is there, and he's sitting there, and he's like, thinking through all the battle possibilities, like 1.4 million and he finishes and he goes, there's only one way we defeat Thanos. One way. There's only one way we defeat the villain. I've seen it, but if I tell you it, it won't happen. And in Avengers Endgame, four hours of cinema later, the fight scene is going on. And as they're fighting, Tony Stark has, spoilers, stolen the Infinity Stones from Thanos. He holds them in his gauntlet and he looks at Dr. Strange, and Dr. Strange does this. And what he means to say by that is, this is the one way we finally defeat him. And Tony snaps, and Thanos is dusted with all of his arts. 
As God looks at your life, trust me, he knows the one way he will work it out best. And he looks at you and he goes, you go, I know, but, but, but what if we were to do it this way, God? No. He's wiser than you and bigger than you. Don't try to reason him out or change his mind. You don't need to. He's wise enough to have figured it out on his own. So trust him in the midst of your deepest moments of pain. Understand that he's working out for you a life where he's shaping and fashioning you into something beautiful. What is that thing he's shaping you into? All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purposes. He goes on there and says that he might conform you into the image of his son. God is taking your broken and twisted heart, your faithless heart, your drawn towards sin heart and life, and he's using all the moments, especially the moments of cutting and sanding and difficulty to shape you more and more into Jesus in his Christ-like character of love and humility. He's bringing you into that. And so all of this is working towards that beautiful Christ-like purpose. And as he works, what do you do? It hurts. But naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will return. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You're big enough to hold all the answers in your giant hands. You love me with your giant heart. And so I just bow myself and trust you through all of this, God. And that's how you make it through. And that's what Job's story teaches us. Young people, you're in pain now. Look to him. Don't lose your faith. Draw near to him. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. He loves you. He's for you. As you go out of here, trust in him. Let's pray. Father, it is only by your goodness that we come to see this, your word, in front of us. I pray that you would work in these young people. For those who are my little brothers and sisters, I pray that you would grow them in their faith. May they become like Job, those who have come not just to hear of you with the hearing of their ears through the preaching of the word, but may they in their own lives, through whirlwinds of their own, and steady and steadfast faith come to see you and know you, even as they're known by you. Father, we love you. We thank you for the evidence of your unfailing love, especially through Christ dying for us. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.